Okay, so Mary, as you know, April is National Poetry Month. Yes. I know that you love poetry a lot. So, you know, being really inspired by when we're recording, which is also Titanic Day, being really inspired by Cecile and her kind of call to write poetry, I decided that I would write a little something for the show and have it presented as a kind of dramatic reading. Is that okay with you? Okay. Um, Sure. We love a poetry reading on this show. Let's do it. Okay, great. I chose to do this in kind of a a non-conventional format. Roses are red. Violets are blue. Cecile wrote a poem. So I did too. I really consider that kind of like avant-garde. And I really just wanted to kind of take on like the level that were presented in this book and just try to match it. I love that voice so much. Like it could tell me anything. Wow. Well, welcome everyone to American Girls, the podcast. This is the show where we're reliving the American Girls series book by book. I'm Mary. I'm still Allison. I am also a poet today, but we'll put that as sidebar for later. Okay. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you've really made a transition here, a very smooth transition to yet another career path. And I'm proud of you. And you know, as you said, I am a big fan of poetry. So it's like, wow, nice to know like another emerging voice. I mean, I want to be clear though, and this like will come up in the book. I am a huge fan of reading poetry privately mm. by myself, quietly. I, I feel uncomfortable when I go and people are doing a reading of poetry. I like it. I won't participate, but I do like it. Cecile has access to this like wonderful trove of local poetry. And in the book that we're covering today, Cecile's gift, she says, no, not me. Mm -mm. I'm going to bring an original work to help the orphans. That's what everyone is looking for me to do, despite the fact that no one is paying any attention to me. I mean, it's really something. It's really something. It's like, I, I I can't fathom what goes down in this book. Like, the real flexes of ego in the name of charity. You know, it's just, it's really powerful to behold. And I mean, for me, it's like when I normally read poetry, I want to read it silently because it's so, it's like so personal to me that to experience it in public with other people makes me uncomfortable. But not only is Cecile not uncomfortable, writing a poem and saying like I'm gonna cast this like published work aside she's like ready to jump up and deliver her poem off the dome to a a crowd of unclear size we'll say that Cecile and Marie Grace would do very well in modern day television because both of them are prepared to push forward a narrative regardless of how rooted in reality it is like these two Mm -hmm. both love to tell us that they're friends with very little evidence There's a lot of passing references to Marie Grace having like a private like palace question mark slash island that she can escape to. There's a lot of questionable like family, romantic choices, and they're both just like absolutely convinced in everything they say. Like there's one moment where they're having different conversations about sadness and as if she's like turning to the camera, Cecile's like, well, your mom's dead, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely like you're right. This they would make great stars on reality TV because they're living contradictions every single book to things they've said in the past book or like ways that they've presented in the past book and yet they're like no this is reality right now. I won't yeah. be proven wrong. 
And it's just, I don't know, it reminded me of like, remember on the episode of The Bachelor where Lace like quoted her own tattoo on her way out the door when she was like, I'm taking myself out of this season (laughs) because to quote my own tattoo, and then I forget what it was, but I was like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen (laughs) in my life. Like, that's what I felt like this book was for me. Yeah, I think these two gals are kind of coming into their own and they both are trying to figure out who they are. And I don't know that they're really helping each other in the process. I promised you all that I would look into the supplementals. And all I want to say is I feel like someone involved in this series is in the pocket of Big Steamboat and is just like pushing a steamboat narrative at every turn that someone is going to buy tickets to escape on a steamboat. And I get the centrality of that mode of transportation in New Orleans being a thing, but I did what I could with the supplementals. I don't know that we're going to get too far into them. All I'm going to say is unless you really care about 19th century opera culture or steamboat culture or jewelry culture, I don't know that they're for you. Eee, what is what a stirring <laughs> recommendation. I Thank guess you. if you're like Mark Twain, maybe it's yeah. your thing. But I mean, before we jump into the book, do you have anything to recommend that you feel more strongly about than the supplementals to this series? I mean, I do feel strongly about all of these things, but I guess if I had to force a choice, it would be the ultimatum. I am loving that show. I'm really proud of Nick Lachey. I think he's trying to make amends for the cultural crimes that he's committed against us in the past. So I think he's doing a really excellent job. If you're patient and you wait about six episodes, Nick and his wife, Vanessa, actually address the way that they moved on past sort of like the cultural impact of his divorce to Jessica. It's fascinating. I think it's great television. Um, and it's people, not, you know, not unlike these books in completely contrived situations that like could be ended tomorrow. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't really know that he's my favorite person even in that marriage, no. but like I prefer Vanessa and I still think, I wonder like in what ways he has self-awareness about, you know, it seems like how Jessica Simpson portrayed him in her book you know, he had a lot of personal work to do and, you know, more power to him if he's done that work. I don't know, but I'm excited to tune into that (laughs) myself. I really liked um, this season of Love is Blind, which I think in some ways was, I think it's produced by the same company. Obviously, they're hosting that as well, but with obviously Nick Lachey, but (laughs) which he doesn't repeat this time around. He sort of makes a joke about it, but I think it's a hard thing when you make your marriage your business. So I do worry for them. Like, I hope, I think they seem like they know what they're doing, but it's got to be hard when, like, that's a big part of your professional life. Like, I don't want to get into an engagement between Leos, which I'm already scared about. Like, I would never (laughs) marry another Leo, but Ben Affleck and J-Lo, J-Lo iconically announced her engagement to Ben through her newsletter promoting some athleisure wear. Okay, so hi! You came to On The J-Lo, and I told you I had a special, very personal story to tell that I only wanted, I wanna share, but I wanna share here. Which honestly (laughs) is such a Leo move, I can only say that I respect this. I'm like, that is so extra, it's insane. I don't know, I hope they don't make that their biz. They're not doing much to dissuade anyone of the fact that this is a prolonged PR stunt, but I think at this point, Mm -hmm. both of them might find it almost impossible to distinguish real life from a reality stunt. So I think that's okay. 
I had a period where I was very obsessed with, I apologize if I brought this up before, watching old videos of Jennifer Aniston um, when she was still with, um, why am I forgetting his name? Brad? Mr. Jolie Pitt. Yes, Brad Pitt. Sure. Um, and I was just like really enjoying the fashion and the style and those videos, kind of the moment that it evoked. But I'm not sure that those two can go home again, but I wish them the best of luck in trying. I have two theories or just questions. One is, I believe J-Lo is someone who's very stubborn. And I think the fact that she let herself release a love song called Ben a few albums ago, I think she's like, I kind of have to be with this guy in order to not make me look foolish in perpetuity about Mm. the fact that I released this song named Ben. Point two is like, has this man already visited a laser tattoo removal specialist or is J-Lo going to require that as part of the prenup? to remove like the dragon back tattoo, full back tattoo. There's one in the home. They're on a per diem payment scale. He's he's he or she is already full time in the house. Oh wow. Cause that I tattoo read, will be gone. Of, I hope so. I mean I'm like more power like I do believe tattoos can be powerful, like, you know, expressions of identity, XYZ, whatever, but like that was just a bad tattoo. That's the problem. But I did see a TikTok by a woman who claimed to have worked for a plant watering service who had just been (laughs) fired, so she had nothing left to lose. And she was like, here's what I can tell you about celebrity homes. And she did water plants in Ben Affleck's house. And and apparently he has a full-size oil painting of both of them over their bed, which is like, again, such a Leo move. It's like, (laughs) it's a shock to me. I mean, I don't know how many days we are from Leo season, but I'm scared. Like, no, if you're a Leo out there, like, please, like, you know what this is. Do not end up with another Leo. Like, it it very rarely works. So I'm scared. We're in the thick of spring because we are still in Addie and Felicity and Molly birthday season. So we're, we're really not even close. Yeah. I mean, I'm excited to watch Ultimatum. I haven't seen it yet. I do want to get into it. It makes me feel better about life, you know, oh, just yeah. to see people living out loud on shows like that. So I'm excited. I, I feel like we do have to talk about the gift that is Cecile's gift. Let's get into it. Uh, so there is no time like the present, I suppose, to uh, to delve into the world given to us by Denise Lewis Patrick in what's the final book of this series. And we did ask you all for feedback on what you thought of this kind of split system, which which we'll get into. But for now, instead of a changes book, we have the gift part of the series. And our summary tells us this. Cecile and her friend, Marie Grace, volunteer at an orphanage every week. And Cecile becomes especially close to one little girl named Parine. But there are so many children who have lost their families to yellow fever, and Cecile wishes she could do more to help. When she hears that a huge benefit will be held to raise money for the orphans in New Orleans, she is determined to take part. But what can Cecile give to orphans to lift their sad hearts and let them know she cares? What's the answer? I don't really think that this was a gift that anybody (laughs) asked for. I just, okay, here's the thing. In in some ways, you could say the plot of this book is deep nine, nine-year-old energy. Yeah. Where they're like, yeah. I'm going to do something that's really going to help you. And it just so happens to be something that I want to do. And that I, it makes me feel good about me. But by the way, this is about you. And, you know, we were just talking about Leo's. Like, I guess I understand the impulse. 
And it is extremely earnest and sincere. So we have to lead with that. But it's also like, if you knew that you were in the midst of a municipal crisis Mm. with orphans in a public health, like true disaster, 10,000 people dead, orphans everywhere, not enough resources, is the answer going to write you a poem? So part of why I think they use the framing device of gift is instead of just dropping off money or instead of just making like a large financial donation in some way, really the arc of the book is Cecile learning how people are going to use their talents as a gift. So their gifts as gifts to kind of get the city going again, to really help these orphans. And I thought it was interesting that they kind of narrowed in on this one event, which is real. I found newspaper ads, Mm -hmm. and it's mentioned in the peak into the past. You can pull up this exact event, which happens in early autumn, 1853. I'm, I'm really still so struck that in six books, we have only moved the needle nine months. Like, that is unreal for an American Girl series. We started in January of this year when we met Marie Grace, and it is only October. And my gosh, like, I want it to be Christmas. I want it to be 1854. Like, I'm ready to get into Kirsten's year and just not be here. I Too think soon? I'm with you on the, I'd just <laughs> rather not be here. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I want to go back to Kirsten. I want to, like, flash forward ahead to Addie. Like, I want to go literally anywhere but where we are. It just feels really bleak in a way that's probably on brand like when you're and the book opens with this energy where people are like um cecile and marie grace are at the orphanage and somebody's like first of all a man dramatically like collapses or faints from yellow fever in front of the orphanage in a way that is like highly cinematic and we meet his sister who then has to go stay in the orphanage for black orphans and they kind of have an exchange, Cecile and Marie Grace, that's basically like, Cecile's like, oh my God, I thought you, your dad said this was over. Questioning the medical prowess of Dr. Dad, which is like, she's not the first, she won't be the last. Nope. And Marie Grace is like, well, he said it's getting, like the rates are slowing down. Like it's not over, but it's slowing down. And I wish I could say that that was what's happening in our times too, but I did just read before we sat down and recorded that Philadelphia put a mask mandate back up. So mm-hmm. who knows? So it's like, in some ways, I feel like this is a bad time for us to be in these books. Like maybe we just were reading them in the wrong moment. And if we read them in a different moment, we'd be less salty about this. So I don't use Spotify as my primary way to listen to audio content. I only have it for a few things that are exclusives, but it's where I show or share some of our content from. And we now have like COVID-19 warnings on our episodes just of these books because we mention epidemic in the description or it's flagged somewhere in the content. And it's sort of notable that we talked about Kirsten battling disease literally just a year later, but over two years ago in our timeline, right? Like way back when we were doing these books in a very different moment. And I don't think it's just pandemic fatigue that's like providing a filter on this because I'm reading people's reviews all over the internet. And a lot of people found these books sort of claustrophobic for lack of a better Mm -hmm. word. They felt really kind of tied up in a very tight timeline where there wasn't much plot advancement one way or another. And I feel a bit like I'm watching 
or I'm reading the equivalent of a television show that was made for network TV that then gets put on a platform. Here's what I mean by that. When a show is made to be binged, right, much like a long novel is meant to be like, you know, read all the way through, you don't repeat things over and over. You don't do callbacks to things that just happened. This book has so many callbacks as if you could forget what had just happened in book five or book four. And the timelines from one to six, they're stitched on top of each other. So it's sort of like a television show where they keep telling you things that happened, but without commercial breaks, you don't need that reminder. Like you're actually just watching something that's very repetitive that that just doesn't fit the medium anymore. And I wondered if that's like how these got written or somehow how they kind of all got put together. We open in this book and within a few pages, we're reminded that Ellen died. We don't need a reminder that Ellen, the family's, um, you know, domestic service worker died because it just happened. So I'm not sure if they're trying to cover bases in case you read these in a weird order, but we don't need that reminder. We didn't have a commercial break that just happened. (laughs) Yeah. And it, it does read almost like there's an editor in the mix who's like, guys, like because they're paranoid that they're working with two different authors in the same series. That they're kind of like, you can't just, you know, you have to pick up where the other person left off. Like, you have to offer these over, like, hitting you over the head recaps that, as you say, you know, us reading them one book into the next. Like, we don't need to be reminded Ellen's dead. No. You know, her, she has been mentioned more posthumously than she was ever (laughs) mentioned in life. Yeah. And, you know, that's a shock. But, you know, that I think there's something about the production of this series and it being the first and, so far as we know, last of its kind That there was like a ton of repetition baked into this because there's two different authors. Like, I'm not sure if they were paranoid. Like, I got to pick up these threads. There was somewhere to side in this book. I got to remember what it was. And it was like, oh, when Cecile, when Marie Grace is like, I'm going to go visit my whoever, my mom's family. uh, Marie, Cecile is like, well, you have to remember to write me. And then there's a sentence that's like, Cecile knew she didn't like to write or like as we all know like Cecile de- Marie Grace doesn't like to write and it's like how do we know that like it feels like that's a reference to like a lost episode of this sitcom yeah where, like that was the main plot point but it just feels like very repetitive and it also feels like these books position us as the reader to be their friend who they don't really like all that much yeah because if they liked us they would take us along on really important moments in their life which we are often not present for And they would actually tell us more about their internal life. They would confide in us and they would confide in each other and we would be part of that. But instead, it's like they have a very like formal or like limited friendship. So we're only seeing like we're feeling, I think, the measure of their limitations with each other. They also ask questions that I think are really interesting. In almost every single book, there are these flash in the pan moments of realization that cross between them. Almost every single book has had a moment like this. There is a a period where Cecile turns to Marie Grace and says, do you think we're really helping the orphans? And there is a question like this in almost every single book, which to me as an adult, I can't help but interpret it as almost like a kind of wink to the reader that there is this level of awareness that there is 
I don't even want to say like layers to this, but that there is an attempt to validate what these nine and 10 year olds are able to do and to also kind of wink at it at the same time to say, obviously, this isn't the most helpful thing. There are other things that would be far more helpful, but in their world, this is extremely helpful. And Mm -hmm. I do kind of feel like something I appreciated in this book is we saw the way that people had to fundraise using basically whatever they had. But something that is never really driven home is the level that Cecile's family is able to contribute is much higher because they are wealthy. They are able to basically Mm -hmm. pour all their energy into making this fundraiser a huge success. And it's extremely unclear to me, six books on, where Marie Grace is in the social stratosphere. Is she poor? Is dad just not good with money? There's this whole other estate that the family is connected to. We don't really ever understand what that is. Is it a plantation? Why don't we know what this like other huge property is? But we're on book six, and we know very little about that. We also know very little about these kind of fascinating women and men that orbit Cecile's life. Grandpa got dropped like a hot potato after he told his maritime adventures. In this book, we meet a woman who loves to cook, and I'm sort of thinking, where has she been? I literally, I'm really glad you said that because when she came into the books, like, first of all, she's in the opening with the portrait, so I was like, okay... And then when we got to the part of the book where she's in the mix and she's cooking in the kitchen and kind of mentoring Cecile, I had to go back and flip through the other Cecile books because I was like, wait a second, we're introduced to her like world pals with this lady. And yeah. I would remember her because she's actually interesting as yes. opposed to like some of the other people in this book. Again, also grandpa, never forget this man dropped a hammer off his ship. Like, I remember your stories, grandpa. Miss you. Each book seems to, for each of the three, like, ascribed to one of the girls, it seems to have advanced, like, one relationship at a time, right? Like, when we met Cecile, Mm. we got really close to her and Grandpa, and her brother was introduced. And then we were really afraid that her brother was going to die, and we got really kind of enmeshed with him, and we learned more about why her Aunt Octavia and Renee are there. And in this book, we're getting closer to Mathilde, right? It's like each time we kind of have this person who comes in, I think if I had like one big criticism for the way this was done, not the actual books, is so many cool people are teased in this series. And unlike the predecessors, we don't get a Marie Grace and Cecile's world type book where we get that entire world built out Mm. for us. And I think of all the books that we've done, that is a huge mistake. Like, I really want that book for these two because I think that the the kind of level of interesting that New Orleans is, like, far exceeds some of the fictional places where these books have been set in. And we're sort of passing by all these interesting people who I think could teach us a lot and we just move on. Like... The Addy books, I think what really set them apart is the depth with which we got to meet all these people, but we never lost sight that her family was trying to reunite. Like we had a big arc that we were following over like two years and we never lost that in six books. Yeah, I I totally agree with you. It's like of any of the books you've read so far, the like idea of like diaspora or like multiple Mm. cultures coming together in one place like these books really embody that 
in a really yeah. strong way. But like you're saying, it runs, it intro, it teases us with these details of all these different cultures coming together, you know, all of these different explorations of race that are possible here and experiences. And then it runs away from it promptly. Yeah. It's like, here, we're going to tease you with it or show that we know that this was happening here. We're not going to go there. And I just wonder what that decision-making process was. Is this a limitation that we get because the brand insisted on having a white character um, paired with Cecile? Like, in other words, if we had just had Cecile's experience, would we have been able to get in deeper to kind of like the all of these different cultures that Cecile might have moved through in her social circle and issues of class certainly coming out? You know, I don't know. Or is it like, again, you kind of mentioned Marie Grace having a family that we don't meet really until the last chapter via a letter. Yeah. That could be a plantation. And it's like, are we not going there because we don't want the readers to dislike Marie Grace because she might actually be related to people who enslave? Like, I, what what's going on here? So I looked up what this place could be, and and I think that there are there are actually many places called um, La Belle Chouanier, um, Chouanier, and I finally decided that she is a um, an ancestor of the people who run um, La Belle Chouanier Ranch Inc., which has the slogan "Beef, it's what's for dinner." It's a very high end cattle ranch, and so I do kind of believe that that is something I could see her family getting really into with dad kind of providing some early um, animal science to guide like better breeding of the cows. That said, um, I think part of the biggest tease for me and something I'm happy about is when we've talked with other people, folks have been asking for a Harlem Renaissance era doll for a really long time. And mm -hmm. it's gone past rumor to being verified that that is the next American girl. The next American girl. Ooh will be awesome. um yeah a young black woman set in that era which i think is like way overdue and and is really kind of an exciting moment i would have happily read six marie grace books and six cecile books and mm -hmm. part of why i say that is i think that there is a kind of slipperiness here of we are we both have training to know some of the contours of how segregation would have worked in this time I read these books and I'm very confused about what those lines would have looked like. And I'm I'm looking for those differences because I'm curious how they're going to represent it. In this book, part of where we get to is there there's this fundraising effort that's going to happen. And Cecile really cares about these orphans. So she goes from wanting to read a published poem to writing her own. And it's been mentioned before in this series that there are published poems by Black poets. What's not super clear until you get to the end is the poem Cecile is reading, she would have had to translate because it was published in French. So for her to even know the English words, she would have been translating it at age 10, which is super impressive. And to mm -hmm. even know that these poems existed is a huge, huge nod that is not made explicit, that this family is like super well connected. This family, th these are not things that just everyone would have known about and frankly that most people would not have had access to. But there is a stonemason connection between one of the people who published Las Sinelles and this, mm. like this family ostensibly, and that's a reason that she would have known about it. 
This is sort of like situating a character in Boston in the same time period and just assuming that they would know Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. This is like a major, like cool thing that they dropped this plot point in, but she just knows this poem, picks through this group of very elite black male poets, lands on a poem and picks the first few lines and memorizes it after translating it. And we're just kind of supposed to treat this like this is a typical thing 10-year-olds do. Yeah, I mean, that is pretty stunning to me. Like, I <laughs> I don't even know what I was doing at 10. It was not that. Um, no. So even just sort of across time, it's very impressive. But you're right. I mean, it is sort of like, in a sense, it's stunt casting in a way to kind of like signal like, oh, and it kind of like, this is a very Dear America move, right? Where it's yeah. like, oh, my uncle's like Benedict Arnold or whatever. And it's it feels pretty seamless in the sense that they have really established that she is from a very wealthy family or like an extremely successful and networked family. So it does feel realistic that she could, you know, through like a Kevin Bacon network game, <laughs> like know this person or be affiliated with them. But I also think it's interesting that the same moment that they flex how cosmopolitan she is and how learned she is for a 10 year old girl, especially a girl of color in this period, you're also getting that she has she has moved in different areas that Marie Grace has not. So she also has um, exposure or access to spaces that Marie Grace is not going into. And I wonder if that's a somewhat of a reveal of the segregation in the city, mm-hmm. or at least in their joint experiences. Like we were told at the beginning of the book, they're playing at the um, orphanage that Sister Beatrice runs. And they meet, as I mentioned before, a girl whose brother has yellow fever. And so um, because she's a black girl, she has to go to the orphanage for black children. Her name is Perrine. I'm not going to say this correctly. Perrine. Perrine. P-E-R-I-N-E. And (laughs) Cecile is very taken with her. And she goes to visit her. But there's an exchange with Marie Grace where she's like, she when Marie Grace is like, oh, she's going to have to go to Holy Trinity or the other um, orphanage. And Cecile is like, yeah, I go there every week. So we know that Marie Grace goes to the white orphanage once a week to play with the orphans. But And we know that Cecile joins her there. But what has not been established until this book is that Cecile mm-hmm. is also going to the other orphanage to do the same work. And Marie Grace is not joining her there. And is that because Marie Grace knows she's not welcome there? Or is it because even though dad is like so woke and an abolitionist or he's against slavery, he's not comfortable with her going there? Right. Unclear. Hey, everyone, it's Mary. I know Mother's Day is upon us and some of us may be looking for gift ideas. I know I am. The other day I was thinking to myself, you know, of the three of us, my two brothers and I, I really do feel at times like I'm the one who knows our mom the best. But usually just when I get really proud of that fact, there's usually something that happens that humbles me. So in this case, my mom just casually dropped that when she was a child growing up in Rhode Island, she had as an art teacher, a survivor of the Titanic, which was kind of mind blowing and made me think how many other stories do I not know about this person? And so that's why I'm getting my mom StoryWorth. StoryWorth is an online service that helps you and your loved ones connect through sharing stories and memories and preserves them for years to come. Every week, StoryWorth emails your mom a thought-provoking question of your choice from a vast pool of possible options. 
Each unique prompt asks questions you've never thought of, like what's some of the best advice your mother gave you? Or if you were to do it all over, what would you do differently? I specifically want to find questions that ask my mom to talk about things like the time she went to an Alice Cooper concert and now claims she never recalls doing that because she and my aunt were there and other people, air quotes, were smoking pot and she got a headache and laughed but doesn't remember being at this concert. And if you know my mom, like her being at Alice Cooper is seemingly deeply off-brand. So anyway, I need answers on that. And after one year, StoryWorth will compile all of these questions and answers and stories, including photos, into a beautiful keepsake book the whole family can share for generations. Give all the moms in your life a meaningful gift you'll both cherish for years, StoryWorth. Right now, for a limited time, you'll save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash americangirlspod. That's S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash American Girls Pod to save $10 on your first purchase. Storyworth.com slash American Girls Pod. Yeah, I think it's sort of a challenge in these books, right? Like, how do you seamlessly have people who are from different backgrounds socializing in a way that is historically accurate and teaches children living now something useful. And I think it's just really hard to do. But I also think something that's missing between them is friction, right? We don't have any kind of moments where there's a misunderstanding. And the fact that kind of the central way that they cement their friendship is over slipping into each other's worlds without consequence is a really kind of um, like 20th century take on how race and racial passing could have occurred sort of almost as a goofy incident, right? It, it really kind of sucks a lot of that context out of it. I kept thinking about that because even after six books, I feel as though their worlds are very separate. And there's this interesting backstory to the poem that Cecile chooses to read, which is it's actually part of a series of poems written between two male friends. And it's Mm. called response because it's literally a response to his friend Pierre after them kind of getting through an incident together. And it's really fascinating to me that she has access to this sort of like world of highly educated Black French poets in New Orleans. And that's presented as something that we just take for granted about her. We take for granted that she's bilingual which I wish was kind of like emphasized as a good thing a little bit more. And then we just kind of assume that these two people who are friends would just casually talk about that and move on with their day, right? Like they're sort of in the middle of a craft project. She kind of reveals that she's going to do this thing. Marie Grace is, you know, basically on board as much as she's ever on board with anything. (laughs) And we move on. And we only kind of ditch that poem because Cecile feels like little kids aren't going to understand it. And I went back and I read a bunch of different translations of this poem. I barely understand it. I'm sure it's a beautiful poem in French, but depending on which translation you're reading, it's a very sort of like heady poem about a man writing to his friend saying that he's happy he's come back to his virtues, essentially that he's happy he's come back to being himself and a storm has sort of passed. Cecile is trying to come in with the equivalent of Faulkner to a kindergarten 
And Marie Grace is like, yeah, yeah I don't know. Sounds good to me. I, I'm, <laughs> do you have extra scissors? Like, you know, she's oh like on God. craft hour. Their relationship is really bizarre. Yeah, and I think it's sort of telling that when Cecile picks this poem seemingly at random, like she's like, I don't know, a couple of the lines sound good. And her tutor's like, thumbs up, do it, girl. And then she's like obsessively memorizing this, like attempting to recite it around her house, like very nervous. Basically, no one wants to sit down long enough to hear this thing all the way through. So she's like literally in the greatest reveal of how she really values Marie Grace is like, okay, well, who can I basically just like automatically know I can get to listen to me and boost me up? And she's like, Marie Grace, she's had nothing better to do. (laughs) So Marie Grace is like, you're doing this. And she's like, here we go. And she like fumbles a little bit, but she gets there and Marie Grace is like, whoa, cool. No meaningful feedback at no, no at that point does not say, hey, as a fellow nine, 10 year old, I didn't understand a word of what you just said. So if if we're hoping to reach kindergartners and such, like kind of feel like this is gonna go over a lot of people's heads. And instead she's like, you, you know best girl, like you do you. And it's just, I don't know, it, at that point, it kind of seems like there's almost like you can imagine a sports movie montage of like, <laughs> Cecile is like yeah. Rocky training. She's like running on the beach, like really trying to do this. And it also reminded me of, I don't think you've seen the um, 1980s Anne of Green Gable miniseries no. with Megan Fellows, but there's to me an iconic scene where she decides to recite in a competition of other like preteens who are going to get up and recite these very long poems from memory. And with the most dramatic flair humanly possible, which no one can go toe-to-toe with Megan follows. And so she gets up as Anne of Green Gables and does the highwayman. The wind was a torrent of darkness among the gusty trees. The moon was a ghostly galleon tossed upon cloudy seas. The road was a ribbon of moonlight over the purple moor. And the highwayman came riding, riding, riding. The highwayman came riding up to the old inn door. And it goes on forever. And she's like, you're like literally like, oh, my God, you are the highwayman. Like by the end of it, you're like, I'm like slamming my fist on the table. Like I'm with you. It's sort of like a man might feel at a Bruce Springsteen concert. Like, I don't know. (laughs) She reaches me and I kind of have. But it's like it's this moment of triumph of like self-possession. Like she did this with no help. She memorized the poem. She performed it. And I feel like Cecile's going for a similar like self-actualization kind of thing. Like this is how I'm growing up. I'm choosing this thing that I really love to do because her mother originally was like, why don't you sing a song? And she's like, uh, <laughs> would kind of rather recite something. And her mom's like, but we pay so much for your singing lessons. And then our mind kind of like stands in and is like, I'll paint the backdrop, which it's like, okay, you could do that for music, a music performance to Armand, but whatever, Here's like what it's I a very nice happening. sibling moment. Here's what I think is actually happening with this book. I think this book is actually a reflection of like the continued into the 1990s, early 2000s, sort of like holdover of the talented 10 idea, right? Like the talented 10% has not been, like that idea has not been spoken aloud yet by like early 20th century black intellectuals. The idea that Cecile reading a poem in front of everyone is a gift to these orphans, I think there's a lot of like ideas behind that that are not actually unpacked because this is a book for children. I think it's not completely off for the 19th and like 
to the present day sort of thing of she's supposed to be an exemplary Black girl and she is supposed to represent the absolute top tier excellence of her community. So in that regard, she is supposed to be something to like inspire people and look up to. I don't think that's actually articulated in this book, but I think that is a cultural assumption that this book gets right. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, do you want to explain what the talented 10% is for people who may not know that reference? Yeah. So there were these competing ideas in the late 19th, early 20th century about Black civil rights and advancement. And there were some Black intellectuals who really put forward this idea that there would need to be a sort of talented, highly educated cadre of professionals in the Black community that would be examples for people who are Black, but also to kind of combat white racism to show that people could be exceptional and be Black at the same time. And um, W.E.B. Du Bois is kind of famous for being a representative of this idea, among other things. But it comes a bit later than this book. But I do think in New Orleans at this time, part of the idea of the production of this poetry book that she has access to is essentially showing Black intellect at a time when, at most, even very sort of like, I don't want to say woke, but like open-minded white people like Dr. Gardner, they'd maybe read Black slave narratives. They'd maybe read Mm -hmm. something like 12 Years a Slave. So the idea of there being a collection of Black intellectual poetry would have been something very different. And I was reading that this never really had like super wide production or distribution, but you can, we'll link to it. You can find copies of this. And this was a beautifully produced volume. It's not a huge volume, but it's, you know, basically a hundred something pages of poems and it's really overdone on the printing, like beautiful borders, beautiful text. Like this is to show people, this is sort of what, intellect looks like in this Black Creole community. And this idea that she could just sort of pluck this poem, you ask a 10-year-old today to find a poem from any time period, they're going to whip out a smartphone or go to a computer like I did in preparation for this recording and type in something, right? And they're going to be able to turn up a poem. There are about a million barriers that would have separated literally almost every American from this poetry book, but Cecile has it. And we kind of just move past that. And I think there's a lot that's implicit in this book and that is never said about the fact that this family is supposed to be like the best family, right? Like Mm -hmm. I feel like Cosby is a terrible thing to invoke now, but like the Huxtables had a purpose on television, right? Like showing this highly educated Black family to combat ideas of racism, right? Like this has Mm -hmm. a long history going back. And I Mm -hmm. think that that's just implicit in decisions that this family makes in this book. Yeah, I think that's true. And I was thinking um, when you were speaking before that there's kind of like a, a dissonance about or like a misunderstanding on Cecile's part about what she's really offering her audience of people younger than her. Like she thinks, if I read this poem that I wrote that reflects the strife of the last year and how much (laughs) I love and I support everyone, like they will feel like basically a big hug for me. Like she has like this visualization. We we follow her literally in like a spark of creative moment where she's like almost, she's asleep. 
she has a vision in her dream of like her mom and all these people like embracing her and they encourage her right to write and she wakes up and like runs to Armand's room and is like Armand pen like I need a feather <laughs> yeah. like let's do it I need a quill and she's like writing out this poem which we don't see until it's debuted in performance so she's coming at people with like a very pure like almost like therapeutic compassionate supportive motivation but I think as you're pointing us to the real benefit of seeing her up on stage in front of all of these Black children, orphans, like children from families of a lower social station is an aspirational and a representational model. Like, look at this girl who's so educated. She translated. Well, I mean, we don't get to hear that poem, but like she could do that. She present people know her family. And in a sense, I think it's not an accident that the source of her family's wealth is her father building monuments. Like in many ways, they are a monument to the rest of the black community of which they're a part and of which we see only a very small slice. Like to me, that's the piece that I wanted more of in this book. But I think it's not an accident that like when they go to her father's stone yard, she's walking along these, you know, stone that's going to turn into monuments. And it's like, yeah, and you are one. Like, yeah, that's really real in this last book. That feels very like very true. But why also that scene was so striking to me for another reason, which is why did we never talk about what would have been the worst summer of dad's life? You're hearing people who work in the funeral profession talk about how they will not ever get over the trauma of the hours that they worked during this pandemic. Dad would have been completely out of control with orders. Like, I'm not trying to be crude, but this man, his life would have changed really dramatically during a period of mass deaths. And I don't know if you're supposed to assume that not enough people would have had money. He still would have had more people who needed his services. At it. So I thought that was kind of like a strange thing that like we learned that, but we don't really ever dwell on it. I, I want like so much more for Cecile and... I kept thinking too about the contrast between the way that charity and mutual aid gets presented in this story versus Addie. And if you remember in Mm. Addie's saves book, she has to prevent someone from stealing all the money at the fundraiser. There's kind of an interesting conflict and, and plot point in that book. In, in this story, I think we're sort of led to see Cecile as this kind of model child in her community, this very bright girl who can sing and perform and does charity work. I also kind of read into it that if we were to meet her again in 10, 20, and 30 years, that she would eventually evolve into sort of a club woman, a Black woman who does essentially mm. mutual aid full time, and that that's part of the cultural expectation. Marie Grace, I think, by the time she gets married or has something else major happen in her life, unless she becomes part of a religious order, she's not going to be doing that. Conversely, Mm -mm. someone like Cecile, who is part of a very powerful family in the Black community in New Orleans, she is going to be expected to do that kind of work her entire life. This episode was brought to you by HelloFresh. 
With HelloFresh, you get farm fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. You can skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make your cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit. With HelloFresh, you can pick your favorites from 50 different weekly options. You can also skip weeks when you need to, change your delivery date, or update your preferences all in the HelloFresh app. You can customize your favorite dishes with new HelloFresh offerings, by swapping out a protein or a side, upgrading for a more luxe experience, or even adding protein to a veggie meal. That means more choices, more variety, and more meals truly tailored to you. One of the best things about HelloFresh is how many family-friendly and quick and easy recipes they have. It's a great way to bypass that trip to the store or a market and just get going. I have to say for me, this is easily the best part about HelloFresh, not having to go anywhere and having it all brought to you. Everything is laid out. The recipe cards are so easy. You will find HelloFresh to be a real time saver. So if you feel like this is something that you want to try, go to HelloFresh.com slash AmericanGirl16. That's going to get you the 16 free meals as well as some free gifts. Remember to use our code AmericanGirl16 and use America's number one meal kit, HelloFresh. Yeah, it does feel like an apprenticeship for her in a way that it's not for Marie Grace. And like, I think it's telling that early in Marie Grace's books, we learn from her that she's ex- she's helped her dad in his practice, even in small ways. But I think that's a big tell because that would not be happening in no. a family of like a higher station. Um, so in a sense, like that's her apprenticeship. Like I could see her either becoming a nurse as part of a religious order. I could see her, you know, marrying a physician and like drawing on the skills that she knew growing up. Like I don't, I see her in some ways like having to, even if she's relegated to the home and she marries a non-physician, let's say, like she will have more responsibility in terms of labor in her household than Cecile likely will. No, no, I I totally agree. Like, I would love to meet these people again in like 10, 20, 30 years. I would also love to imagine, and maybe this can be sort of like a fan fiction prompt, which we haven't had any of in a long time. What happens when Cecile goes to New York State or she goes to Boston for a convention of some kind and she um, hears about Emily Dickinson? Because in this world, I get to decide that that is happening. Sure. Emily is not quite writing poetry And yet we have Cecile here in um, 1853, like she's ready, she's primed, like she's already got her first poem out on the street. It was kind of an interesting thought experiment to me to think about there probably had to be some very small number of Black children who did get access to this edited collection of poems and it unlocked something. It did something for them in their childhood and for other intellectuals who would have read it. And to think about the contrast between that and Emily Dickinson, who just by virtue of who she is, can write a letter to Thomas Wentworth Higginson and, you know, be unknown for most of her lifetime, but posthumously become one of the best known poets in the country. Like just the way that these paths like really end up being so different. Um, Or maybe Cecile never writes a poem again. I don't know. I could kind of see her like being part of an early women's book club tradition 
And, you know, when the book club gets together, she's like, guys, got a little surprise for you. I did (laughs) read the book. And I, you know, just off the dome, I just want to share like some free verse that's coming to me from this experience. And they're like, okay, but the point is that we talk about the books. And she's like, no, 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 no. I'm okay with that. But first, here's my poem about this. And people were like, oh, like, that's so cool. Like, I do think that there was more of a tradition of like home production of, of original writings and the circulation of writings and all this kind of stuff in ways that, you know, likely are just reduced to email now or text. But Mm. it seems like, you know, I think she would actively keep writing. I wonder, as you're saying, like the sphere of her influence or even sort of like the imagined literary network of which she might openly be a part. That's an open question to me. But, you know, I could see her like whipping off a poem and giving it to Armand and Armand comes back at her with like a sketch that inspired her. Like, I don't know, they seem like they have like something like an artistic connection Maybe that will continue for her, but I don't really know beyond that at this stage of life. Like, who knows? We'll see. I think these two, we we kind of end with the two of them, like, realizing that they're really good friends and that they're going to maintain a correspondence through the holidays and everything else while Marie Grace is off visiting family. Um, To be honest with you, I think we hit 1854 and these two never talk again. Like, I think one one letter gets lost and these two never really have a correspondence. And then they run into each other one day and Cecile is shocked by the state of Marie Grace's one dress and boots. And they don't really think about each other past that. Yeah, I think that's real. I mean, you know, it's like they're living during such a turbulent time. You have no idea, like, what's going to influence them or, like, their mobility is going to change or you know, like the increased polarizing segregation in the city, Mm. like, will that be a barrier despite like the class superiority of Cecile's family? I don't know. Like, it's interesting that we end with a shared meal. Like Armand has been long recovered, but Cecile (laughs) chooses many months after his recovery to be like, yeah, so dad, can we have Dr. Dad and and Marie Grace over as a thank you? And he's like, yeah, sure. And they cook this like amazing sounding buffet and Cecile is praised for helping um, the cook prepare dinner. And they all are, like, finding common ground. Like, Grandpa's like, yeah, Uncle Luke, like, you're a steamboat captain. Like, I was in the, I was a sailor. And it's like, do you guys really have much in common? Like, it's just, no. it was an interesting visual. And it seemed like a forced reunion or a forced, like, I don't know. It's like when you go out to dinner with people you barely know and you're like, so, um do you like TV? Like it just gets really (laughs) awkward really fast. But I kind of think like the book ends with letters that Marie Grace sends back from her mom's family. And it's like, does she ever come back from there? Or does dad just leave her there? Cause he's like free babysitting. Thank you. I don't know that dad picks her up at the steamboat stop. I, yeah. (sighs) Well, they said like, Oh, dad's coming for Christmas. And it's like, is he? So I feel like a great encapsulation of their relationship is the conversation in air quotes that they have as uh, Marie Grace is getting ready to leave. And they're sort of shouting each other's name to to really no avail or purpose. Um, And we learned that a double-decker riverboat has come up and then Marie Grace is rushing along the rails 
And um, Cecile tells her to enjoy her cousins, to enjoy herself. Marie Grace says, what? (laughs) She still has no idea what she's saying. (laughs) Cecile cupped her hands around her mouth. Have fun. Like, she's like, I have to keep it as basic as possible with this girl to communicate. They wave. You know, Cecile's hands are cold now. And she's like, I'm glad I made a friend. Sticks her hands in her pocket as sort of like main character energy. And she's like, this is great. I don't, I don't know, like, really, truly what's going on with her. Um, we do get a letter from December 4th that they're going back and forth. If you recall how cold she was when she got letters from other friends who got to leave the city, I don't think in reality she would have received this very well. Like, you know she's still in the trenches with the orphans, and she's like, yeah, it must be nice to be at your plantation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like, the little older that Marie Grace gets, like, let's say she has greater exposure to these cousins on presumably a plantation. You know, are her views about race going to remain the same as when she arrived from Massachusetts? Like, yeah. And especially with changing political climates, like, you know, all of the above. I just wonder... You know, and it does Cecile look down on Marie Grace because she can't have the same kind of conversations about getting new clothes at a certain like there's a conversation she has with other mm-hmm. girls of her class about like well of course you're going to get a new dress for this benefit right and it's like marie grace is worrying where like doesn't know where dad is at dinner time never mind like if she's going to get a new gown so it's like they're in different worlds on so many different levels that at a certain point it's like well they have not much to say about it to each other i don't know So the series actually ends on a question, which is sort of interesting, which is, Maman says true friends are friends forever. We are, aren't we? And then she's like, anyway. Maybe. Who can say? It's kind of interesting that, like, Denise chooses to end the series that way. Um, We wrap up this book with kind of, like, a, a classic, like, sweep through how did people recover from major world events? How did people rally together? And then also what felt like a plug for the city of New Orleans by the Tourism Bureau, where they were like, you too can go to New Orleans and have a beignet and take in live theater and experience all of this culture. Um, They're like, Hurricane Katrina and an oil spill um, did kind of have a damper, but rich heritage still thrive. You're like, okay. Huh? Yeah. (laughs) It's weird. And it's also weird because... They don't mention, probably for obvious reasons, like anything to do with the Civil War. But it's like, this would have been a city that looked very different for a lot of reasons um, in the 20th century. But primarily because, like, there were many Confederate monuments in New Orleans that, you know, went away in 2017, which is not that distant of a past. But, you know, like, no commentary about the city's commitments to various, like, various histories and whether those would be like Cecile's history is not overly visible in the city but until 2017 what would have likely been Marie Grace's because I'm just going to go ahead and say like I think she would have supported the Confederacy but yeah you know like that was pretty visible so I don't know the end is the end is weird it's enter and it's weird to end with a tourism moment I think it's also No, and I think we can also kind of read something that's happening in the peak into the past is like, it is true that a blending of cultures is part of what makes New Orleans a really special place, right? Like French, Mm -hmm. Spanish, all different kinds of African influence. But I think something that like, we can take away and kind of pull out of this that isn't really said here is 
a lot of the prominent people who are actually talked about are African-American or Black people in the community. It's like that tradition that you're talking about is an African art or is a Black tradition. It's sort of like, well, that's New Orleans, baby. You know, who knows? (laughs) Um, And it's like, no, actually, like, there's a very specific kind of culture that Cecile had access to as a girl, a privilege of her background. And the fact that she can speak French really sets her apart from even lots of other people of her race in the community. So it's kind of a fascinating end. And I do wonder why with this ending, they chose not to give us anything else New Orleans. Like you've also never heard of a Marie Grace and Cecile experience, whereas there are Mm. Rebecca Rubin experiences in New York. Like you could easily get a steamboat company to sponsor like a day out where you learn something about what it meant to be a child in New Orleans. But I've I've doesn't mean it's never happened, but I haven't heard of such a thing. Yeah. And I think like in some ways, I wonder if it's like our imitating life in terms of the challenge of that. Like, how would you actually have a fused tour experience that reflects both of their worlds in the same way that I think the book struggles to bridge both of their experiences. And as we've said before, like it starts with this fantasy that they can just disappear into each other's worlds, which we know is not true. So I don't know, like as a public history challenge, I do really wonder what that would. Because when it's all said and done, it ends with them being apart. Yeah. When it's all said and done. Yeah. Within nine months of this relationship starting, they have gone in very different directions already, which is something that felt a little bit inevitable from the time that we met them because they can never fully be in each other's worlds in a meaningful way. So um, a takeaway, like this book really did make me think about sort of like even our contemporary culture of celebrities leading fundraisers for major world events or disasters. Mm. And I started looking up, like, who are some of the biggest, most generous celebrity donors of the time that this book was written? Not shocking, Barbara Streisand, George Lucas, some other people. But I think part of maybe where this book comes from is sort of an interest in, like, thinking about how people respond to disaster. But this book would have been written very differently if it had been done post-COVID, I think. It it would have had a very Mm. different approach to talking to kids about coping than this book does. In what way do you think? I think that this book really doesn't offer a lot for how to actually make it through a situation like this. And it sort of presumes that things will just work out for the right people, like right being in air quotes. Like there are people who are essentially really kind of made expendable in this series. Like There are kids, siblings, servants that kind of just disappear and we don't really, really have to deal with the fallout. Like it's literally just something that like flies through Cecile's brain when she says like, oh yeah, remember Ellen? And she's right back into what she was doing. Mm -hmm. And I think that that even compared with how Kirsten has to deal with death are two very, very different things. And I think if this were written today, there would have been a little bit more of an emphasis on real things people did to try to avoid getting yellow fever. Like there's a passing reference to nets. I think that could have been a bigger part of the story, 
Because a lot of being a kid, I think, through these moments is you're being told things you don't fully understand. And there's all sorts of new restrictions in your life. So the mm. the net kind of being analogous to mask wearing, I think there would have been a little bit more of that rather than it being so background. Mm, I think that's true. I do think it's interesting. In some ways, I think it's appropriate that the book ends on a lack of resolution between them and with them separate because I think it does foreshadow what's coming. Like in yeah. a way, it's like it's nice. It's interesting to see an American Girl series and without feeling compelled to resolve like the major like urtext of this book, which is like race in America. Like we all know the Civil War is coming. Obviously they don't know, but you know, it's interesting that they're not forcing some what would feel like really false reunion. Like I think the fact that they're move literally moving in different directions as the book ends is a tell. And I think a good one. But yeah, I mean, when Cecile dropped her poetry bomb on us all at the benefit, it did make me think of fundraisers like We Are the World. Yeah. <laughs> um, Do They Know It's Christmas? Um, pretty much all of the 9-11 concert performances, you know, things where you're like, how does this, sorry, how does this relate back to what we've all just experienced? And I think it's like people with the best of intentions using the talent they have to try to make some kind of difference or at least like offer a therapeutic effect, you know, maybe to mixed results. Yeah. And I think that there is a good lesson here, which is like you can channel a gift that you have in a lot of different ways. And I do just kind of wish that like Dr. Tad, Dr. Dad was a little bit more involved in everything. Like he kind of seemed to have no problem clearing his calendar for dinner. Um, Mm -hmm. One of my my kind of favorite parts of this book was when Cecile is just absolutely like, I want to make people happy. And it's like, you know what, Cecile, I want you to be happy too. Yes. And I think that that's sort of like a common impulse in some American Girl books, which is like a girl is very generous or considerate or compassionate of other people in their lives and is like, I'm thinking about them and their happiness. Yeah. And it would be nice to have someone direct it back to her and say, and you're allowed to, you know, want your own happiness too, or, you know, value that as much as Dr. Tad's in a sense. Or like, is Mathilde going to get a day off? I, I don't know. Probably not. Probably, Probably not. not. I don't think so. So from here, we are not quite moving on yet, but we do have some plans to kind of keep the conversation going around these two. Uh, We also have some kind of cool surprises coming up. Yeah, I'm very excited about some of the stuff we have coming up. And, you know, I'm excited about like the fact that the things we're doing as extras are not necessarily depressing or at least like they're exciting in context, I guess. Like we are going to have other people bring their gifts to us. And so not everything will be exactly on the nose of Marie Grace and Cecile, but there will be some really good stuff there. So, And if you want to write your own poem about this series, I feel like we should empower people to do that and share it with us and we can have our own little poetry slam. Yeah, I think that would be really cool. I would love to hear people's responses to it. I would also love to hear what you appreciate about these characters, what you really kind of enjoy about them or what inspired you. Been seeing a ton of uh, Marie Grace and Cecile Dolls on social media, and I love what people are doing with them because Hmm. these dolls have just never been that prevalent on the web not nearly compared to others. So it's been really cool to see Caroline and now Marie Grace and Cecile have a little bit of a renaissance in a moment. 
That is nice. It is nice because, you know, they didn't get their due in the no. time. And that's not right. And like you said before, I would read six books a piece of these two characters. And I kind of wish we had gotten that opportunity because I still think it would have been special to have two characters set in the same world. Um, even Absolutely. and especially if they barely mixed with one another. Like that would have been interesting too. So, you know, we're just, we're going to keep this party rolling and, you know, more to say about them. And if people have more hot takes about potato chips, where should they find you? You know, if people have hot takes about potato <laughs> chips or jeans or anything else that I care about, please get at me on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney or on Twitter at Mary Mahoney123. Now, Allison, if somebody would like to offer supportive yet um, constructive feedback on your (laughs) poem, where might they find you? Yeah, so I'm reachable at Allison Horrocks on Twitter and Instagram. You can also uh, reach out to the show or share something you've made um, at A Girls Pod on Twitter and American Girls Podcast just about everywhere else. We are on Facebook, Instagram, we have a website, and we also have a telephone number that you can call and we promise to not pick up. We won't pick up and periodically we do mailbag episodes. So if you call and leave us a voicemail, we may play it on a future episode, perhaps, unless you tell us not to, but that would be exciting. So thank you in advance. Yeah, thank you so much. We'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.